0: Welcome back to the Autobiography Podcast on the Live from AC Second feed. This is Sam Mulberry, and today's show is one that goes back to April 11th, 2014. And I'm still at the point where I was interviewing some of my really close friends. So if you're a regular listener to this feed, this is somebody that you'll uh, likely be familiar with. This is Professor Sarah Shady. So she came to Bethel in 2002, and we talk um, in here about the the first time we met, and Sarah and I have have taught uh, CWC together for about as long as I've taught with anyone, so um, she's really really a great friend um, and a great person. Sarah's actually going to have a show on this feed starting this fall that we're very excited about called Sarah Shady Public Philosopher, so be looking for that. Um, Yeah, I'm really excited about that show, and I'm excited about this interview. I hope you enjoy it. I hope you have a great Fourth of July weekend and we'll be back next week with um with one more show. in fact, I'm gonna post the uh, the next autobiography episode on July fourth because I'm a big podcast fan, and I know that a lot of a lot of folks take the week off as they should um but it's always like this very dry week for podcasts and, and especially on the holiday itself so i'm gonna I'm gonna set uh, one of these shows up to post on July Fourth itself. So if you're looking for a way to um, to enjoy your Independence Day, you can um, listen to my podcast with Professor Kathy Evans on July Fourth. So until then, I hope you enjoy this interview with Sarah Shady. Hey, welcome to Autobiography. Uh, my guest today is Sarah Shady. Um, She is the 2013 winner of the Faculty Excellence Award for Teaching. She teaches in the philosophy department. Um, And this was really just a great conversation um, that we had, sort of talking about her intellectual autobiography, but also talking about kind of what it means to be a philosopher or to be a teacher who teaches philosophy and, and what is she, um, uh, To talking about sort of some of the – how the different experiences that she had, even from a, a very young age uh, growing up in, in uh, Fort Wayne, Indiana, um, how that – we can draw some pretty clear lines, you know, from those experiences to what she teaches now. I, I just think that was – this is a sort of a, a perfect example of kind of thinking about autobiography – uh, in that way, Sarah's just a really, f- uh, fun person to listen to. We, she was part of the, uh, the CWC, the radio show team. So at this point, um, I've interviewed most of the, most of the team from the, uh, the old podcast days. Uh, and I hope you enjoyed as, as much as I did. I think we both had a lot of fun sitting down and talking and, uh, we gave ourselves lots of time to do that. And I think that's a, that's an important thing. I uh, remember if you want to email the show, it is podcast at gmail.com. Um, the show page, if you're looking for, Uh, previous episodes, or if you're looking for the book and media recommendations is autobiographypodcast.wordpress.com. So uh, take a look at that. Um, I hope to be scheduling some more um, interviews. The semester ends uh, at the end of May, so I hope to get a couple more in uh, before then. But I hope you enjoy this uh, conversation I had with Sarah Shady. Well, my guest today is, is Sarah Shady from the philosophy department. I want to start with this question, Sarah. Um, do you remember the first time we met? Not that you should. I'm wow. not I'm not asking like you should. I just distinctly remember the first time I met you.
1: Well, it has to be I in my in my mind it would be somehow connected to CWC it's for not, the first fall is, and it's not. No,
0: it was not on Bethel's campus. It
1: either. was not on Bethel's campus. No, no,
0: the first time we met was uh, at the old Harmar Mall. I was going into a movie and you were leave, it was bowling for Columbine. Yes,
1: and I was <laughs> with leaving with Kathy, Kathy Nevins. Yes. I do remember all of this now and Kathy had told me about you because, yes, because that would have been my first year at Bethel and we didn't start teaching CW, I didn't start teaching CWC right. until my second year. Right, cause we did, cause, yeah.
0: so that you started 2002, is that right? At Bethel? I did start yes. fall of 2002. Yeah, cuz I and then we started cuz we we started lecturing the same year in CWC in 2003. But yeah, I, that was the first time that I met you. I just remember it was very weird cuz I was going to a movie by myself and it was very strange and I saw Kathy and then we shared so that's that's right. uh, I was just curious if you remembered. No, I can picture that, the
1: whole thing perfectly now. Kathy and I shared a big bucket of popcorn at the movie and yeah, and yes. All right.
0: <laughs> well, well, as you know, sort of the the, the purpose of this is uh, is to sort of do intellectual autobiographies to kind of you know tell tell sto- tell our stories or right. you tell your story and I'll interject as much as I can. Um, and you're somebody who who I find infinitely fascinating. I write down when I sit down to interview somebody, I write down um, a bunch of words that I that I sort of associate with them. Fascinating. Um, so I'll I'll tell you what. Um, I'll tell you what some of those words are, and, and I'm sure some of these things will um, will sort of pop up as we go. And I actually found your chart. I usually like to do like, can I do like four words? But I just kept thinking, oh, I should probably write that one too. <laughs> so your list got a little longer. Right, right. So the, so the things that I wrote, um, I wrote discussion, mm-hmm. um, which is funny because I don't really know you as a, dis- like in a, I know you teach classes in your philosophy classes they are discussion based. I know that the, uh, the, the honors class, you're also the director of the honors program here, that those classes are you know, heavily discussion-based. And you did a, a presentation in the library this week, which was about, it's about sort of the way you teach. And um, yeah. so I want to definitely hit on that. Because right. it's funny, I only know you as a lecturer right. in you've terms of watching you Right, you've never
1: seen me teach, teach in, the, in a smaller classroom. Right,
0: so that that was one thing. And then I wrote, um, I wrote two names on here. I wrote Martin Buber. Yeah. Um, because I learned who he is through you. Um, Great. And, and most of what I know about him <laughs> comes through you. Um, Albert Camus, which is sort of a point of connection with us. Um uh, honors is that you're the director of the honors program. Mm-hmm. I also wrote South Africa and gender as two things that I think Perfect. about. like the, So, so these are all sort of themes that I'm expecting in your story. Not that yeah. you need to add them in there, but like these are the things that, that I mentioned. In. I especially want to get to thinking about how you think about the classroom because because um, I think we we come into the classroom, you and I, with very different toolkits. Sure. <laughs> you know, and and sure. the way we even if we're giving a lecture, the way we approach that is very different. And um, I'm always I'm always challenged by talking with you about teaching because I feel like your instincts go in different directions than mine. And I feel like like there's, there's elements where like, I want to grow in the direction that you're that you teach because I like I really like the way how engaging your style of teaching is. I should also say you're the uh, the current title belt holder in faculty excellence award in teaching right? so, for the next couple months. Right? I kind
1: of wish there was a belt that went with it. Doesn't it deserve something? a traveling mm-hmm. trophy that you it really know... does? Yeah. <laughs>
0: and you actually he actually had to wear the belt sometimes would be kind of fun <laughs> or have a student have like a TA walk behind you holding it up like that would be kind of
1: oh great. yeah I like the idea that I ride in something that TAs carry you know oh. That that's not a
0: bad idea, <laughs> or at least like a rickshaw, or right? Something. Exactly, uh, exactly. You know, kind of announce your presence as you yeah. as you come into a room. So you were you're from Indiana, right? Yes. Were you born in Indiana? I, I you was. Moved around.
1: Yeah, I was born in Indiana, and I lived. In Indiana, all the way up through age twenty-two, with the exception of two years in Miami, Florida. So there's this middle school anomaly of Miami, Florida, that fits into my story.
0: Okay. So, and so were you always in the same town in Indiana? Yep.
1: Born okay. in Fort Wayne,
0: okay. Indiana. And how big is that? Is it, is... Uh,
1: about two hundred and fifty three hundred thousand. Okay. So, so town's probably a, not an appropriate word. For right. That. It's a, a decent sized city. Size city. Okay. Yeah.
0: So, so what was, I mean, what was Sarah Shady like as a, I like to ask this question to people who have kids because you have a, a nine-year-old and a soon-to-be seven-year-old, yes. right? Mm-hmm. Um, so I always like to think about like when you were that age, what were you like?
1: Yeah, I was a little bit awkward as a kid. I mean, maybe maybe all kids are awkward because you're sort of still trying to figure yourself out. I loved school. I I thrived in school. Anytime you got a new book or a new assignment, I just, I loved school. I loved reading. I, um, I was on a swim team. I think my parents kept trying to get me involved in things that weren't just purely academic. So I started swimming at a young age and then swam. Competitively all through high school, they tried other things like tennis lessons and dance lessons. But those who know me well know <laughs> can you imagine why that didn't work out so well. But um, but swimming was okay because it didn't require me to really coordinate myself. Okay. Yeah, um, I I grew church was a big part of our life uh-huh. growing up too. So in terms of who a lot of my friends were and what a lot of my activities were, those would have been through our church,
0: sure. and that would have been a uh, Mennonite um, church. Yeah, an or?
1: evangelical Mennonite church. Okay, um, and that. Was my only church experience that I ever knew growing up, um, and I suppose another part of my uh, childhood that ends up becoming formative in my life, although my parents wouldn 't have realized it at the time, was they made a decision to send us to this experimental school when we yeah. were in elementary school, and so we lived in the suburbs, but instead of going to our local public school, we were bused into an urban school. Uh, and so students who lived in the attendance area of that urban school still went to that okay. as their school, but they it was a school where with focused programming on arts and humanities. So okay. that was the lure to get suburban parents to send their kids. Okay. So we had a multicultural education. We were doing Spanish immersion back oh, really? in the eighties wow. and things. Wow, when... that's
0: pretty progressive. Right, right? that's.
1: And my parents weren't progressive, so it's they. But they really thought education was important. And so that was that was, was great, the motivation. Was just this to yes. be a better school. Okay. Yeah, they'll have a better educational experience there. So, so what did
0: that mean for you to to live in the suburbs, but take this, but 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 you know, go into the city for schooling? I mean, what was not? I mean, not just like having to make that trip, but I mean that that was your that was your your educational experience. What was what was meaningful about that?
1: Yeah, yeah um, and and. I can talk about that in terms of how it felt as a kid and now how I reflect on how that shaped me as an adult. As a kid, it was a little bit strange because it meant I didn't have any friends from my own neighborhood. My friends were people I saw at church and people I saw at school. Um, Well, I did have one neighborhood friend. but So my life was really fragmented in terms of the circles that I navigated. Now, I should also say, and... um, you know, to to their credit, it's it is an ex- explanation. It's part of their own growing up. But my parents grew up in a very very small town um, with a very homogeneous population, and so the multicultural part of the experience um, was uncomfortable growing up because I would have friends. Of different cultures and different races, but my parents were really nervous about inviting those kids to our house, which I wouldn't say was an active racism by any means, but it was more ignorance- Sure. And fear based, sure. you know, than anything else. So I would I would describe it as a kid as very fragmented. What that was doing in my life, though, that I wouldn't know until later was exposing me to the, the real beauty of figuring out how to build community amidst diversity sure. and the different roles that diversity can play in shaping how we think about things and realizing from an early age on that nobody has the monopoly on what the world is like. Sure. Uh, and, and so that was a great so, aspect. So, what, of it.
0: what grade would, would, did you start in that? Second grade. So, okay. I so did second through on. fifth through okay. that program.
1: Yes. Mm-hmm.
0: And was it strange, um, especially sort of the way you talk about um, sort of the background that your pa- parents come from? I presume your church was pretty homogenous. Yes, absolutely. Right? Was it strange in terms of you said, okay, I have friend groups at school and I have friend groups at church. And that those experiences were probably pretty radically different, I assume?
1: Yeah, right. And so, um, you know, as I was growing up, it really wasn't until high school where my life started to sort of synthesize a little bit more. Um,
0: And why is that? Because you were going to high school where you lived or what was
1: the... um, So I actually then I ended up going to a Lutheran high school, which is strange because my family has... Well, my uncle and aunt were Lutheran, but my parents wanted me to attend a private high school and they said I could pick which one I went to. Uh, and so I picked the one that my best friend from church was okay. going to. So that's why I ended up there. And so that brought some of my worlds a little bit closer together between church and school.
0: So did you did you um, attend the same high school as your sister? Or no. You, so you guys, so you each chose different schools to go? Right. Okay.
1: Yeah. Yeah. So... <laughs> And, and this, I don't know how much of the story you want, but oh, we'll whatever. see where this goes. So, okay. So, how I ended up needing to choose a private school is because of a really bad experience my sister had in, in the local public school. So, when we moved to Miami, that was for me at the end of fifth grade and for my sister at the end of eighth grade. So, for me, that meant I did sixth and seventh grade in Miami, and then moved back to Indiana for eighth grade, which isn't the worst time in your life to move as a kid, because between fifth and sixth grade, you're going to be going through transition anyways. For my sister, that meant two years of high school in Miami, and then moving back to Indiana for two years of high school. She didn't want to move back. She hated those two years. Uh, She became really involved in journalism, um, and wrote, it was at a very... Uh, racially and economically diverse public high school wrote an article for the school newspaper about uh, Black History Month, asking a question of to what degree might that be. Healthy and to what degree might that actually be divisive in a student body? Mm-hmm. And actually, racial riots started in the school upon the publication wow. of her article. At which point, my parents said, well, "You're going to go to a different school." So, huh. yeah, <laughs> it's the crazy kind of yeah, in-between story.
0: Well, I'm, I'm interested in, in, in sticking in the um, in the the elementary school yeah. you were at. Um, sort of pre Miami, although I do my favorite fact about the Miami, um, the Miami <laughs> schools, it's the same school that Alex Rodriguez was at at the time. Indeed.
1: Right? Yes, exactly. Yeah.
0: So was, was that, was that a person that people would have been aware of at the time or was this before he, someone would have been aware of him as a talented prospect? Uh, you
1: know, that's a good question because I wasn't into sports enough. I mean, I think he would have been thought of as like the star of the high school sure. baseball team. Okay. People who are really in the know about baseball would have seen a lot of potential in him. But it wasn't like everybody at the school felt like we were watching someone okay. who was going to be famous. Well, I'm always curious about lives. that. Like, yeah. like, you know,
0: people who go to school, even in the in the orbit of people who then rise to like superstardom, like, could you see it? Like that's kind of right. that's interesting. But anyway, anyway, that you know, going back <laughs> to the elementary school, I want to. I'm curious more about sort of that experience, especially. I mean, one of the things that I like to talk about here is um, kind of how our experiences shape the way we think about teaching, right? Both in terms of what we study and what we teach, but how we teach. Mm-hmm. Um, so I mean, that sounds like a. Those are pretty formative years. Yeah, um, and I and I'm I'm assuming. Um, Someone looking at your current both scholarship and teaching would see all kinds of resonations between those.
1: Yeah, it's an interesting question because I, so going back to this elementary school experience that's multiculturally based. So whatever topic we were reading, we were reading a lot of different voices on that topic. And if we were going in art class, we would be doing art from all over the world and music class, music from all over the world. Uh, and we had this super interesting part of the day. Called Called block time. So every school day, there was about an hour, hour and a half, where you would pick an activity that you wanted to do. And about every month, you would switch activities. And they were things like, I want to learn how to knit a scarf. I want to learn how to do ballet. I want to do logic puzzles, these really creative things that you could pick. And so there was always this aspect of school that was... It's really fun to play around and experiment with new things. And I think uh, as I think about my classroom now and having a discussion-based classroom, I guess one of the ways that I think about teaching is a classroom space is this great place where we get to do the college version of, of play. Mm-hmm. So we're playing with ideas. We're playing with concepts. We're experimenting with things. In some ways, it's like playing dress up, you know, sure, in a sure. grown up way. What would the world really look like if I was Camus? What would the world really look like, you know, if I was a medieval Catholic? And right. and how, what, you know, as I as I step into that world, what resonates with me and what doesn't resonate? Sure. Instead with of putting
0: me. on like the fireman's helmet, you put on existentialism as <laughs> exactly. a worldview and say. What is what is the what is the how does this change the way I see the world? Right? Yeah, yeah. Right? And I mean, I think in and along with that, as sort of an exercise, like that's kind of what an eighteen to twenty-two year old should be doing, right? Should be saying what well, you know. One of the things you talked about in your your um, your talk about teaching earlier this week had to do with dangerous ideas and a safe space for dangerous yes. ideas, and that, I think that's that's part of it, both the classroom and then as an institution. I think to say. I think Bethel at its best is when you know, and I think about this when I for me being a student here, like there were moments where like you got interested in an idea and you let it play out for a while to say, what would, what would it mean? And you, and you let that idea challenge you. And then you experience what, what, what often the experience is, is, you start to see the shortcomings of holding one idea too strongly. You exactly. start to realize here's where those things crumble around it.
1: Yeah. And I think because, you know, because I had the good fortune of growing up with parents for whom education was very important, Growing up from an early age on in an educational setting where the whole idea was experimentation as a way to learn, I have never had a sense of fear about education. I've never had a sense of fear about the pursuit of truth. And so when I think about a classroom, I want students to feel safe to explore, to question, to challenge, to wonder, uh, because I think we need those safe spaces in order to create a place where we can really move forward with ideas. Um, my parents were never the sort, you know, they they didn't, like some Christian families, I mean, my parents didn't really police the sort of music we listened to or the type of movies we saw. Um, and, and so there wasn't this clear distinction growing up of what was Christian and what was non-Christian. I'm
0: actually curious about thinking about that more broadly as you think about even when you were younger, before you were probably making a lot of... Um, you know, music or pop culture choices. How much unstructured play did you have as a kid, or how much? Because that's—I mean, we both, where kids are about identical, yeah. In age, and that's one of the the tensions that I feel is like I grew up with an unbelievable amount of just unstructured time, and like on paper, I probably wasted a lot of it. Like I watched a lot of TV. As yeah, a I was. So did about, I? I was thinking about like when you would hear statistics about the average, you know. Eight-year-old watches blank hours of TV a week and be like, "Yeah, that I, I beat that." Like you know, yep. but but at the same time, like I was given the freedom to make some you know maybe bad choices. I actually think I learned a ton and exactly, and, you know, unexpectedly. But also like just the idea of unstructured time. And I think about now. I mean, the the students that that I see coming in here, even some of our best students, I feel like their high school lives are so heavily structured. Yeah. And I think about myself as a parent, I watch other parents, and I realize how little unstructured. I feel like sometimes my children are stressed when they're not getting enough unstructured time. But the busyness of our lives, and then once they get involved in one or two things, that unstructured time just goes away.
1: Exactly. And I, especially during the summer, I... There was so much unstructured time in my life, but it, but I I can remember a lot of positives about that. I, I mean, I I watched a lot of TV too. I have seen undoubtedly every episode of the Brady Bunch at least three times, and I I I, I hands down I think I could beat anybody <laughs> in Brady trivia. But at the same time, um, our house growing up had a basement and basement that was play zone. And so my sister and I basically had a little town built in the basement and she would run a restaurant and I would be the post office and the store and we would just play town every single day. I mean, now part of this too is I was the younger one. My sister's four years older by age three by grade. Um, my hero, my, my sister. I, I even tell people today, if my sister worked at Bethel, everybody would want to be friends with her instead of me. <laughs> but, you know, but so I had the benefit of of growing up with a sister who played a lot with me and who was always coming up with creative things for us to do. I remember in fifth grade, my sister read The Hobbit. And one day she called me outside and was like, OK, we're going to build. Um. Why am I totally blanking on where the hobbits live, the Shire. The Shire, okay. yes, that's embarrassing. I just recently read The Hobbit to Gavin. <laughs> we, she's like, okay, we're going to build the Shire in the sandbox today, you know, and we had it all laid out exactly like the book. So, um, yeah, so a lot of free play. Yeah,
0: I, I, I think about that. Sounds so much like my childhood for one yeah. thing. I remember my parents. Both my parents worked. Both your parents? Worked? No, okay. my
1: mom didn't work. Okay.
0: There's a magic in both of your parents working. Once you hit the age of, like, my brother's two years older than me, so like he's ten and I'm eight. I think that sounds about right in terms of the kids could maybe stay home. Yeah. Okay. I mean, yeah. especially when we were kids, like, right? That's it was something like that. So we were young enough to not have particular interests in other stuff, and so but we were home alone, and you couldn't really go anywhere, right? So. um what we would do, there was this magic thing where my mom, my dad would leave for work early, you know, before people got up. And my mom would leave at like 8 o'clock in the mm-hmm. morning, let's say. And my dad would get home between 2.30 and 3.30, which meant if we could, we got it to to the point where we could clean the house from 2 to 2.30. So, like, whatever we did, like, there was no signs left of it. <laughs> I love so, it. So, we had from, you know... 8 a.m. until about 2 p.m. So a good six hours. And, and we would do these strange things. Like we would – we would you know, in the summer, so you have every day, like we would take turns and it would be like, okay, so this let's say this day was my turn. My brother would sit upstairs and watch TV. You know, we had a basement too. That's where play yeah. happens as well. So my brother would sit upstairs and watch TV because it was my turn to be in charge for the day. And I would go in the morning to the encyclopedia and I would read about something. Uh, so let's say I read about – Paris, uh-huh. the city of Paris. So my job then was to transform our basement into Paris.
1: Oh, fantastic! And then, and
0: then he got to go on a trip to Paris, right. and I would give him a tour. So you'd have to make the Eiffel Tower, but it might, but, but it might also be we're going to travel to the middle ages Mm -hmm. in europe or it might be to we're going to travel to an episode of the transformers like (laughs) it could be it didn't it wasn't just a place it could be a story we were going to and you you i remember having to you know build it up you know and build experiences into it almost like you're building a theme park in the basement and it always included lunch too so that person was in charge of like Okay, so if you're if you're going to this episode of the Transformers, like there's some event happens and you eat, and then the person <laughs> has to make lunch as well. Right. And then you would there would be this flurry of cleaning and making beds. So by two o'clock, my, when our dad came home, he didn't need to ask what we did that day. Right. But but like I just think about that type of unstructured time, and I just can't imagine kids having that anymore. Right.
1: I know. I know. I think it's so hard for my kids to even think about what to do. You know, it's that they rely on us so much for coming up with ideas. And I will say, I mean, you know, as I think about some, some things that I really appreciated that my parents did, there was a table in our family room that always had a jigsaw puzzle out. Hmm. So, you know, there was, um, we always played board games with my dad. There would usually be a family game night, but often there was a board game of, you know, Risk or Monopoly, something we didn't finish, always sitting out on the dining room table. And, you know, and you, so you sort of had these I love that. moments where you could just go and, and pick things back I up. I want to go to your parents' house things. right
0: now and just put a couple <laughs> pieces in the puzzle. That's sounds Oh, well, I know. Great.
1: That's just it. I mean, there usually still is a puzzle out. And um, and even in high school, I remember, um, I have this distinct memory of some of my friends being like, wh- why weren't you at the basketball game last night? What do you actually do on the weekend? And I'd be like, well, I usually spend one night of the weekend playing board games with my family, like even in high school, you know, so spending time together is always something that I really enjoyed with my parents so i'm thankful to that
0: wow that that's yeah. that's so cool i, I want to do that i want to get i want to get a puzzle we, we have a table we could do it and right it's like, right we're just going to be the puzzle table and i love that idea because mm-hmm. um, we were up at stormy over spring break and ann and i spent one day because it was just us and the kids and the kids were doing something and ann and i spent the afternoon putting a very randomly like putting a puzzle together and when we were done we just turned to each other and said that was just really fun. Like we had a conversation and sort of worked on our, and sometimes exactly. we wouldn't talk for like 10 minutes and we were just working. And then all of a sudden something would come up and we'd start talking about whatever. And it was just great.
1: Yeah, exactly. We did that this winter now as our kids are getting a little bit older and a little bit, you know, able to do more like a 300 or 500 piece puzzle, just having one out all the time. And mm-hmm. yeah. So,
0: so if, if, if I were to ask, um, like nine year old Sarah, you know, what, uh, <laughs> What do you want to be when you grow up? What kind of answers am I getting?
1: Mm. Nine-year-old Sarah grew up with a view of the world, and this carries on into high school, Sarah, where women were supposed to grow up to be teachers or secretary-administrative assistant or nurses or church pianists, and that was only to carry you over until you had kids and stayed home. Um, this terrified me as a kid. I mean, well, as I got into well, high school, yeah. You? Okay. So uh, if you would ask nine year old Sarah, nine year old Sarah was going to be an elementary school teacher. Okay. By the time we got to high school, Sarah, high school, Sarah realized I'm not so great with little kids. Like I get pretty easily bored with little kids and you know, what am I going to do? Cause I don't want to be an elementary teacher. I'm not good at Organizational stuff, so I would not make a good secretary or receptionist. The sight of blood makes me <laughs> almost pass out. There goes nursing, and I had this crisis of identity of actually being a really gifted student, loving learning, and not being socialized in a way where that was easily going to translate into anything. So I okay. actually, oh, go ahead.
0: No, no. So, so when I, I'm sorry. I'm sorry. To interview. You. Yeah. I want, I want to ask you. Two questions branching off from that. Yeah. The first is a short one. The second pushes our story, story forward, I think. Sure. So, so what does nine-year-old Sarah, we, if we hop in the DeLorean right now, we, we, <laughs> we you know drive, fly, whatever you do in the, in the DeLorean, go back to, I won't do the math to try to figure out what year it would be, to see nine-year-old Sarah. What does she think of Sarah now?
1: Oh that does she
0: even have a category to think about that or
1: that's a really good question. Oh my gosh. I yeah. What I wanna say is the fact that I turned out to be a teacher makes perfect sense to her. The fact that I turned out to be a working mom who teaches philosophy in a college, she's not sure if you can be a Christian and do that. So she would find that very fascinating. I would have to explain to her how all of those pieces work together.
0: So that would be a fun lunch conversation for the two of you. Right. I want to make exactly. this happen somehow. I'll, I'll, exactly. When I get the flux capacitor up, we'll, we'll, and <laughs> we'll give this a try. So the, the other question then, I th- so you talked about, you know, in high school still sort of feeling, starting to feel those tensions of these are the things which feel like options and none of them feel like me. I mean, if I'm hearing correctly. Right, right? yes. So what
1: opens your world up? What opens my world up in a few few different things are starting to open my world up. One is I have the most amazing youth pastor and his wife, a male youth pastor, but his wife, both of them are very involved in my life. Both of them have big views of the world. She's a working woman with a career. um, And they're, they realize that I have a lot of questions and like to wonder about and think about things. And so my youth pastor starts taking me out for lunch or breakfast or just to ask deep questions. He'll just say, Sarah, I've got a question for you. What do you think about this? And for the first time, I am I start to realize as a high school student how much I like to think and that questions aren't bad and that it actually... Can actually, uh, from a perspective of faith, questions can bring me to a deeper faith, hmm. um, so part of it is having an amazing youth pastor, part of it is traveling. And my parents always have also placed a high value on traveling, so getting to see different parts of the country, getting to see different parts of the world was a really good opening to um, kind of picking up on some of those ideas that started as an elementary school student of there's more than one way to view the world and mm-hmm. more than one way to understand things. Um, also from an early age, you know, growing up in a middle-class family in suburbia, but being in an urban school, I've sort of always known what poverty looks like. And even though it wasn't my own story, I've always, you know, as a kid moving forward, been deeply troubled by the inequity of mm-hmm. things and wondering why the world had to be that way. So in high school with the right youth pastor and some travel experiences, I started to really ask those questions in meaningful ways for the first time. Okay.
0: And how did that blow open career options or, or life options?
1: Yeah. So then what happens is I'm a senior in high school and I deeply want to go to Wheaton College. Wheaton has a third world studies major. I'm on board to sign up for that. You're not
0: the first person I've interviewed who says this. <laughs> exactly.
1: I, I'm i like ready to join their swim team. I have a whole life planned out for myself where I'm going to work on issues of economic justice as a missionary. Like, this is my plan for myself. My sister had gone to Taylor. So part of my wanting to go someplace else was also because I didn't want to follow my sister's footsteps at that point in time. Then happened the event where, because I always, my parents raised me in a way that I was always going to do what my sister did. I applied for the same set of scholarships she applied for. I was awarded a scholarship to Taylor that paid, would pay 80% for four years. And my dad said, we went out for breakfast one day and he said, okay, you can go to Wheaton, but you have, I want you to see if you think through a reason why God would give you this scholarship gift if he didn't mean for you to use it and I wrestled with that for a long time and I couldn't come up with a good answer to it so my dad and I struck a deal where I would go to Taylor for a year and if I didn't like it at the end of the year I could transfer to Wien. So
0: so what year did you start at Taylor?
1: Fall of 94.
0: Wow! So there actually is an alternate universe where you and Amy Poppinga are Wheaton students together at the same isn't time. Isn't that in crazy? Our,
1: what if we were roommates? Oh, well, you'd I love be more this. like
0: her mentor, right? You'd yeah. be like a year or two older. So, like,
1: oh wow, isn't that crazy? Oh, let's like spin a script for that world. <laughs> okay, in time. We'll,
0: we'll workshop that. But <laughs> okay. but I, I just think that's I mean it's fascinating, right. you know Because I often think about like as much as we when you're making that decision about college, like it feels like you're making the biggest decision in the world. And then there's a point where you say like, you know what? I'm probably who I am. And yes, I'm affected by my college experience deeply. And I deeply am. But I also think I also was formed before I got there partially too. So like, I probably would have been okay had I done this or that. But I think about like, but then like who wouldn't I have encountered had I gone to this school or that school. But it's funny to think like, you know, here's Amy in, in Minnesota, you in, in Indiana, and there is a, there is an alternate timeline where your paths cross that way, too. Like Exactly. It's crazy to think about. Like, like, <laughs> right. You, know, you start to think, like, maybe things are just meant to be. Right. You know? Like,
1: Amy and I were meant to be friends one yeah. way or the other. And, and maybe yeah. there was
0: actually a moment where you were supposed to have met even before that, and it just kept not working until right. it did. Right.
1: Right. Exactly. Yeah. Oh, gosh. No, Sorry, I totally fantastic. got you off track. Yeah. <laughs> So you, um, go, so you go to Taylor I go to Taylor which
0: is, which is interesting because forgive me I've never been to Taylor but it's in the middle of nowhere right
1: right so it's one hour away from Fort Wayne where I grew up so it's not very far away literally in the middle of nowhere and how, did, it-
0: how did you feel about that I mean I'm, I'm listening to your story saying I you know grew up in this in the suburbs but I went to this school in the city I lived in Miami. I travel like all these things are opening your world up, and then you go to what I can only imagine, and this might just be a bias, but like I can only imagine is just this tiny insular community, right?
1: Right. Yeah. You know
0: why? Uh, <laughs> why? Well, you said why? You said why? <laughs> right?
1: Yeah. You know, but the the and this is actually something that I think is a strength of Taylor as a place is. I and mean, Bethel talks a lot about community, and that's great, but there is a sense of lived community that fosters in a place where you have 1,800 students that literally have no place else to go on campus. And so it doesn't make sense. You know, the nearest movie theater is a half an hour away. So you might go to the movies once on a weekend, but you're not going to leave campus every night. Mm -hmm. So, so much just crazy, silly, make your own fun life is done Mm -hmm. at Taylor that, um, that it was really, it was okay. Okay. It was okay. And then I did I did um, two different interim study abroad trips, you know. So, so where, where I did, did you a, go for those? I'm always curious. Um, my sophomore year, I did a uh, trip to Oxford. So it was just a January term at Oxford. And then my junior year, I went to Israel and Greece. Okay. Yeah. And,
0: we're, and what were you studying when you went into... What was your plan for... What to study when you first started at Taylor?
1: So the closest I could get to third world studies was to be a sociology major. So I went in as a sociology major. Uh, My first semester there, I ended up in an intro to philosophy class and I realized within like Actually, I realized at the bookstore buying my books for that class. Like I was so ridiculously excited to read all the books for the class. I loved the professor. That was my favorite class of the semester. And so, had, had
0: you really encountered? I mean, you talked about the, the the youth pastor who sort of was talking to you like a philosopher already. But like, yeah. had you really encountered? philosophy before? Well, that's
1: a good part of the puzzle that I forgot. So this Lutheran high school that I ended up at, because my cousins had gone there and my best friend was going there, actually had a fantastic curriculum. Hmm. Um, And so I took a lot of honors classes, AP classes there. And for seniors in high school in the honors track, you did a year-long humanities seminar. That was, it was basically two periods of the class day for an entire year with the same 20 students and three teachers. And so we integrated, it was sort of like doing, uh, actually in a lot of ways, how I think about Western Civ here at Bethel. So mm-hmm. it was doing Western Civ, integrating art and history and philosophy. So we did read some philosophy in that class. We did some political theory in that class. We got to do really amazing, fun, creative projects in that class. So that class really opened me up to the humanities.
0: Because I was thinking about like when I came to college, I probably could have. I could have told you what philosophy was. I yeah. probably could have named some philosophers, mm-hmm. but I don't think I knew anything about. Like, I, I don't think I could have articulated anything about Plato or Aristotle. Or right, and I mean, and I went to a good a good Catholic school where and we learned. We did. We had quiet courses on ethics and. But but I don't think it was ever packaged in a way. To think about it that way. yeah. So I think what's interesting is, you know, we always uh, we talk with students about how much your thinking is influenced by these philosophies, even if you don't know them. And I don't know how much my thinking was influenced, but I definitely could tell, like, the kinds of arguments uh, in high school. We, I mean, again, this is a Catholic school in the 90s. Like, like I, you, every paper topic was either you wrote about euthanasia and then your next one was about, you know, some other, like, moral topic like that. But all of them were so... Um, so much influenced by Aquinas, like, and it's funny. Yeah, sure. So, like, I get it when we tell tell students like the Catholic tradition, the way they make arguments is Aristotelian through, um, through Aquinas. And I was like, man, I was writing those papers and not knowing it. Yeah, so, so, no, so like, exactly. I so I had no exposure because that's really interesting. So you came mm-hmm. in with. At least some of the bit. beginnings of that. Okay. Yeah,
1: I wouldn't have been able to really articulate much about Socrates or, or Plato and Aristotle at that point. But I knew a little bit about what it meant to think philosophically. Okay. So that was good. Uh, so I took this Intro to Philosophy class, loved it. Declared a second major in philosophy at the end of that first semester and continued on taking philosophy classes. So while I was taking philosophy classes and taking sociology classes, I started to realize some things about myself. That in sociology I was really interested in social theory, you know, how societies form, what a healthy community looks like. I was really disinterested in any form of empirical research. So, so by the end, so we're going to
0: give you a high five.
1: (laughs) So by the end of my first year, I had dropped sociology down to a minor. Philosophy was my major and I picked up a minor in history. So I had Major in philosophy, which you don't like sociology, to talk about your history, minor. no, because I know it requires me to have to know some facts that I'm not very <laughs> good at. <laughs> um, yeah, so then, but I still, you know, I still would not have had the foggiest idea of what I was supposed to do with my life because I still had this very limited, narrow set of options for women. Did you
0: have anxiety about that, or were you just sort of trusting the process?
1: I had great anxiety about it because, um. I mean, I think the sad truth of it is what I had most anxiety about was what if I don't get married because that's what I was raised to believe I was supposed to do. Mm -hmm. And so if I didn't get married, then I would have to come up with a job. So it was like marriage was my ticket out of having to solve my career crisis because Mm -hmm. being married meant I wouldn't have a job. Mm -hmm. So I would be okay. (laughs) I, I mean, it's weird to talk about it and I'm sort of ashamed to even say that I thought about the world that way but that was just what well, sure. I knew and uh, See, I, would,
0: I, I would say it's not weird to talk about her I mean it would be weird for well no I mean if I say if you said that now about yourself I would say well that would be different but then again that would be true for you so whatever right whatever's true for you is true for you like that's <laughs> yeah that's better truth is better to say it yeah
1: right so you know, by my, and uh, so I, I, I think my kind of backup plan at that point in time was I'll be a missionary. If I'm not, um, if I'm not grad, you know, maybe I'll go into apologetics or something like that and be a missionary. And so I signed up my sophomore year to do a summer internship with a missionary from my church in Ireland. And I spent that summer in Ireland. Um, and towards the end of my sophomore year of college though, my philosophy professor started talking to me about, you know, you're actually really good at this. You should be thinking about graduate school. And I thought, well, what would I do if I went to graduate school? And they said, well, you you would be great as a professor. And that was not a category Hmm. of, of, you know, careers women had in my life. And so- Did you
0: have, did you have, uh, female philosophy professors? No. Okay. Did you, have, did, did you have many female professors that you encountered in your, at Taylor?
1: No. So actually what I did was I, I went out to find one. Okay. And my sister was an English lit major and she had this professor that she loved. And so I knocked on this professor's office one day and I introduced myself, you know, my sister, would you be willing in talking to willing to talk to me about what it's like to be a Christian, a woman and an academic. And this woman took me under her wing and mentored me Hmm. and she had recently had a baby. So it gave me this, this picture of uh, what a life could look like that I wouldn't, I I didn't have any imagination for before Hmm. that point in time. So, um, yeah. So by the time I came back from the missions internship, I really thought, you know what? I, I can serve God through academia and by my junior year I was on board with the plan of philosophy on to graduate school. Now I will say everybody in my family both sides of my family so aunts and uncles um, with the exception of my dad everybody was a teacher. So uh, growing up teaching was always an honorable profession mm-hmm. and it sort of made sense that I would go on to teach. So was it, was was this level.
0: just perceived as just another version of being a teacher? or Exactly. Was... Okay. Yeah. Yeah. So 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 in weird ways, it still fit within the categories. but Yeah,
1: but- yeah, uh, I think so. So in some ways it was, yeah, exactly. So it was like it was one, you know, the early option was an elementary school teacher. Well, I'm still going to do the teacher route. I'm just not going to do it as... Uh, at the elementary level, okay. I'm going to do it at the college level. At the same time, too, and and I will say Taylor was not by any means progressive on gender issues, but I was a deep enough thinker that I was becoming deeply suspicious of a lot of the things I was told about what it meant to be a woman and how I viewed that growing up. And so on my own, I was beginning to question all of the myths of what women should not shouldn't be doing. Hmm. Yeah.
0: So then so how do you how what was the process of making that move from Taylor to did you go right to South Carolina? I did. Okay. Mm-hmm. What was what was that what did that process look like for you? I mean I I guess I'll ask both the process but also uh, I don't know about how philosophy programs work like how quickly do you need to to like have an area of study when you're going into your program? Did you need that before you As you were applying, is that something you sort of feel out as you're there? It
1: depends on the program that you're applying to. So I knew enough about myself and with the backgrounds in history and sociology that I wanted to go on in social philosophy or social theory, something along those lines. But I wasn't 100% sure what I wanted to lock myself into. So I particularly picked programs that could do social philosophy, but where I had some curricular options to move around Mm -hmm. as well. And that's one of the things that where South Carolina was a good fit. So I applied a few places. I went and visited the places where I was accepted and just picked what feels like the best fit for me. Another thing I really liked about uh, South Carolina was that they had a, a program in teaching philosophy as part of the graduate school program. So it's interesting because I think in a lot of ways I've always seen myself more as a teacher than as a philosopher. I think of myself as a teacher and philosophy is what I teach more so than I'm through and through a philosopher and teaching is how I pay the bills.
0: Uh, is, that, is that because of the nature of the work you do or is part of that still the echoes of...
1: I think that's kind of rooted. I don't think it echoes back to the gender divide. I mean, I just think that echoes back to, I have always loved teaching, communicating ideas. Yeah.
0: Okay. Um, do you, but do you see the work you do as the work of a philosopher though I mean it, it, I find it interesting that you say like I, I, I I'm a teacher who teaches philosophy I'm not a philosopher I don't think of myself as a philosopher like I'm What, I'm is, what is it? what would it mean to think of yourself as a philosopher
1: right no and, and you know it's funny because if any of my departmental colleagues were in here they would laugh but I, I do carry this sort of like sometimes worry or maybe undue humility about it of like well I'm not sure I'm properly a philosopher so there is within the discipline of philosophy, there's kind of this debate or challenge between is applied philosophy where you take philosophical ideas and apply them to ethical or political reality. Is that really philosophy if you're not just dealing with the sort of abstract epistemological and metaphysical truth? Mm -hmm. Um, And so because most of my work and publications tend to be more along the pedagogical side, they're certainly informed by philosophers and philosophical ideas. How would you answer that question, though? Do you (laughs) think
0: that that's philosophy?
1: I yeah yes so I so the sort of my goal
0: here is for you to say you're a philosopher.
1: <laughs> yes, I'm a philosopher, but I'm a philosopher who always questions myself which I suppose makes myself even more, more philosophical. Philosoph- That's yeah. right. I'm a philosopher in in very much I guess in a Socratic sense of I'm not sure I'm quite good enough to be one. <laughs> which,
0: which, yeah, which which makes you a good one, right? Isn't that that's the rest of that circle? Yeah, I'll finish right. it for you, right? That okay, is, I'll,
1: I'll own it, right? Because if
0: so- if Socrates decided that he all of a sudden did have wisdom, he wouldn't really be Socrates anymore, right? <laughs> but...
1: You know, and I think one of the things that's really challenging about this is if we look at the American Academy, the Philosophical Association, the American Philosophical Association. The types of philosophy that are dominant in that academy are esoteric problems, you know, mm-hmm. that sort of get reasoned about in the abstract. And some of the deepest what I see is the most important philosophical questions about what's the meaning of life? Why are we here? What is it? You know, what's the mm-hmm. good life? Um, how do how do we live in a way that ideas matter? professional philosophy isn't as interested in those ideas anymore. So Hmm. that's the part of me that, you know, that sort of carries the chip on my shoulder about maybe not being a proper philosopher, but I decided a while back, I don't care.
0: All right. Well, I'm going to call you a philosopher (laughs) from from here on out. So um, what was graduate school like? I'm always interested in in that experience because that, uh, and maybe I'm just sort of thinking of my own story, but like that was, as much as, like, high school prepared me for college, so, like, I could do well in college. But, like, graduate school was just such a uh, cultural shift. And I don't mean cultural in terms of – I mean cultural in terms of academic culture, not in terms of I went to the small Christian school and then I went to the U of M. Because that didn't matter. Right, like, right, Like, right. I, was, I was ready for, for that stuff. Yeah. But the cultural shift in terms of um, – Sort of what academics looked like, and and I, and maybe actually this is the small Christian college versus the the like the U of M for me, but but the sort of weird competitiveness of it and some of that stuff that
1: right 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 no I you know I remember so well. I had some really good friends in graduate school. My friend Jennifer and I, we started the same year. We were some of the only women in the program. We became really close friends. And I remember early on, Jennifer and I having this conversation. I can picture her sitting on her couch in her apartment saying, wow, for the first time in life, school is hard for us, you know. Mm -hmm. And so it's sort of that. Realizing everything about the percentage of people who go on to graduate school, you, you, you've sort of finally gotten to this is my last academic frontier. Mm-hmm. And there was something about that that was really exciting. I loved graduate school because of the first time I could really pick to only study the things that I was interested in. Sure. And at the same time, it was deeply challenging. I had my very first semester. I turned in a draft of my final paper to a professor and he called me into my office and said, this is so terrible. You have to start over from scratch on another topic. And I, I actually, as much as I didn't want to, I cried in his office, but that was such a pivotal. Hmm moment for me in two ways. Academically, I had to really learn what was going to be required of me in graduate school performance in terms of personal life and grit. It was the ability to fail and figure out how to pick myself up and learn how to be a person who could learn from failure. Sure. And sure. that was a lesson I hadn't had to learn well, before. Th- th- that's
0: interesting. I want to, I'm going to jump forward for a second here yeah. because we've spent the last couple of days working with um, things to do with the honors program here at Bethel. You're the director of the honors program. Um so we're – earlier today we had a, a meeting where we were going through applications for the honors – for next year's honors students. On Wednesday we had this full-day meeting with consultants about the honors program. And I, I'm, I'm really fascinated by sort of the, the moment that high-achieving people, in whatever area they're high-achieving in, the first time that they run into failure. Mm-hmm. Um, because I think I – think, uh, one of the hallmarks of certain kinds of high achieving people is this brilliant ability to avoid things that they're not going to be good at, right? Oh, exactly. You know, I mean i am I I'm I'm making some assumptions, but you talked about like as a kid doing athletics and feeling like I'm of a feeling you probably weren't a high school athlete much. No. Because like, you got but out of that I swam, stuff. But yeah, right, but right. I mean but but a lot of that other stuff you're like, yeah, that's I, I don't I don't want to do these things that I'm that I'm it's not that you don't want to challenge yourself, but you want to challenge yourself in places where you have a good chance of overcoming that challenge so you can face the next one which is where a lot of growth comes from but i'm interested in in those areas where we've been succeeding hitting that wall of like oh this is this is new right
1: right exactly exactly school had never been heard before i never really had to work you know work to the work with a healthy sense of fear about right. I have got to do better than I think I can do. So so
0: what is it like because we don't teach graduate students here who yeah. are having that moment. What is it like when you're working with honor students and you're maybe watching them hit some of that?
1: Right, you know, I try to create safety nets in classrooms. And so what I decided early on with the first semester honor students was I was going to be a tough grader but they had the opportunity to rewrite any of the major assignments in the class. And that felt like a good compromise for me. And actually in some of my other classes, I do that too. It adds to the workload, but if you're willing to really work hard and demonstrate that you're going to learn what it is that you really need to learn or are being asked to learn, mm-hmm. I'm going to give you credit for that. So um, especially in a context where I know you didn't just blow off the assignment to, to begin with, and sure. you know, it's sort of, replicating for undergraduate students that experience I had of being called into the professor's office and saying like this is so bad I'm not going to grade it you've got to start over with something else and here are the very clear expectations right and you you know and,
0: and part of me part of me wants to believe that like that paper really wasn't bad, but like that was this weird test that you passed. <laughs> that's it's like that yeah, they do that with yeah, everybody yeah. to be like, look, we just want to see how you respond to this. Right? Well, like, like, oh, that's interesting. You know, yeah. And yeah, but 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 I also know that that feeling of like the first time turning things in. I remember the first time here when I turned in written work, thinking like, this is college now. Like, is are the standards di-? like I remember feeling it, trying to feel out the standards of right. what was good in high school. Is is that good here, or or am I? You know, or, exactly. or, or, or like how much do I need to raise, raise the level of what I'm doing? Um, you know, and I, and ideally you wouldn't raise the level just to like, so I can meet the standards here, but you'd raise the level because it's worth raising the level. But
1: exactly. But yeah. Right.
0: So, um, so what did you end up studying at? At South Carolina. So you said you got to do the things you were really interested right. in.
1: So I found I really loved existentialism. That was a love that I started in undergraduate school. And I got to do more work in that in graduate school. Graduate school is where I became introduced to Martin Buber for the first time. Um, I found my dissertation advisor that way. Uh, in graduate school, I also got to read and study feminist theory for the first time in a really academic setting. Uh, yeah, so that was, that was fantastic in all of those fronts. I uh, was taking a Heidegger seminar in graduate school. I had studied Heidegger at Oxford in the undergraduate study abroad program. I've always liked Heidegger. But I was really frustrated because, and and existentialism tends to do this, it's very individualistic. And that bothered me. I mean, this sort of commitment to community, to society, those sorts of interests really bothered me. And so I wrote this paper critiquing Heidegger on those angles. And the teacher of the seminar, the professor said, you know, great, Martin Buber makes the same critique read this book and that was when I started reading hmm. Martin Buber and then uh, that the professor of that is who ended up becoming my dissertation advisor.
0: Oh that's cool. Yeah that's awesome.
1: and another thing that was wonderful about my dissertation advisor was when um, So, sort of I'll bracket something off I went straight from undergraduate into a PhD program I wish I didn't do that that's sort of one of my life regrets I mean it may, may meant that I started my life here at Bethel earlier than I might have otherwise. The master's program would have been good for filling in some gaps in my academic program would you would for, you
0: would you think a master's program somewhere else than where you end up doing your PhD or would that not matter
1: I don't think that matters okay. so much I just think you need more time okay you need more time to develop the academic skills to make that leap you need more time to figure out what it is you really want to specialize in because I got to the part of the program where they had to tell me like Here's your deadline for picking a dissertation topic. Hmm. And I was interested in everything. Sure, and sure. so my, um, the doctor long, the person I knew I wanted to work with for my advisor, sent me to the library and he said the best research is done wandering the stacks. Wander the stacks until you have a dissertation topic figured out. So I was wandering the stacks one day. And I found this like little pamphlet wedged in between a whole bunch of other books. I pulled it out and it was a pamphlet titled From Chaos to Community. And it was written by a philosopher by the name of John McMurray. It was a lecture he gave at the end of World War One. Uh, sorry, 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 sorry. At the end of World War II as a British philosopher asking the question, How do we reconstruct Europe at the end of World War II, realizing that we're not architects who look at broken rubble that we've just stumbled upon, but realizing that we're part of the reason it collapsed to begin with? I was hooked. Like. (laughs)
0: But, I mean, are you like living a movie? Like you had a professor say, go wander the stacks until you find your topic. You walk around and you find the little closet to Narnia. You open up. The <laughs> That's What is that? that no, happen. I know
1: exactly. I think this is something that makes me so sad about the fact that increasingly all of our research is done online. Because when you're researching online, you don't find things by accident, right? Sure. You don't go looking on the shelf for one book and look at the interesting cover of the book sitting next to it. So I read this pamphlet by John McMurray. I realized, wow, the library has a whole section of his books. I learned all about him. My dissertation advisor had studied McMurray in graduate school. So we pieced together this dissertation of looking at concepts of community in the work of Buber McMurray and Charles Taylor. Crazy. Yeah, Yeah, yeah. So
0: it's funny yeah, the, the the wandering the stacks is, is like one of the things that um, uh, that I did to get through college um, when I changed my major from computer science to history. The big difference, two big differences in my life. Well. Um the big difference is that computer scientists don't have to read a lot and historians <laughs> right. have to read a lot. right, right. Um so my problem was I would fall asleep when I would read. So like I had to so I had to find ways to um to stay awake. And the other thing is because I had to read a lot, I had to get glasses because I couldn't I I, I needed glasses probably, but I had to actually get them to read. But I used to um walk around the library stand, so I could stand up and read and I would just go to where nobody else was because I didn't look that weird and I would walk around the stacks. I used to do this when I would grade essays. We used to live by Hamlin University. I'd go to their library, go up to the third floor and walk around the stacks. And I, I remember constantly, you know, like you'd finish an essay, grading an essay and I'd turn and look and whatever I saw on the shelf, like, it's just, it's like these things are calling you like, exactly. oh, you should read this. Yeah. I remember finding so many interesting books just because I happened to be in some weird aisle and it would be like... You're, and I wasn't thinking about even what aisle I was in. It was like, oh, this is some sort of abnormal psychology book, but <laughs> right, that looks right. kind of interesting. And yeah, yeah. Like, like it's, that's, that's, you're right. I think that that's the kind of serendipity that's just not going to happen in the same kind of way.
1: Exactly. You know? Exactly.
0: So, so take us from South Carolina to, to Bethel. What's yeah.
1: Okay. So I, I'm, I'm in South Carolina. I'm working on my dissertation. I'm married at this point in time. Um, And I am planning on graduating in about a year. So I have enough funding in my graduate program for one more year of dissertation writing. It's May, spring, thinking about one more year in South Carolina. And my phone rings in my office uh, at South Carolina, my graduate assistant office and it's Paul Reisner from Bethel University in St. Paul, Minnesota. I don't have the foggiest idea who Paul Reisner is. And he says, um, "We, I got your CV from a faculty member at Calvin, and I think you might be a great fit for a position we have open. Would you consider applying for it? Inside my head, I said, uh-uh. Like, I, I'm not just going to randomly apply for some job in Minnesota, you know? So I said, well, thank you for the information. I'll I'll think about it and get back to you. Now, Jamie, my husband wisely said, I don't think it's every day that a job calls you. So what's the harm in in exploring it? Sounds
0: like your dad talking to you about (laughs) Taylor. Like,
1: let's pay attention to things
0: that are happening.
1: Exactly. And so, you know, if we go back to that, that year in South Carolina, if I go back to around Christmas time, I had applied for a job at Calvin. We had a lot of friends in the Grand Rapids area. It's only three hours away from where we grew up in Indiana. Calvin is like, if, you, if you're, if that is the quintessential department to be at. If you're a Christian philosopher, um, and they, uh, they contacted me that they weren't going to interview me because they only wanted candidates that had PhD in hand, but they wanted to have dinner with me to sort of cultivate a relationship for the future. And so I said, great, sure. I had dinner with them at a philosophy conference with members of that department. Uh, and I thought, well, that can't be bad. So the next thing I know, they, Bethel had had a job open that whole year that I didn't even apply for because I wasn't even really formally on the job market. Mm-hmm. Bethel had not found a good fit in terms of specialization and qualification for the position they had open. And uh, in a conversation with a buddy at Calvin, Paul learned about me. So in a matter of about two weeks time, I applied for a job at Bethel and was flown up here to interview for it. It was finals week in May at Bethel. So they put together like a mock class for me to do a teaching hmm. experience. I gave a paper uh, and they oddly, Bethel seemed so clearly a good fit for me when I was here. Um, and they offered me the job and it was really easy within 24 hours time to say, yeah. You know, I, I remember so clearly Jamie and I were out to dinner and Jamie said, yep, I guess we're moving to Minnesota. We had no ties to Minnesota, no idea what we were doing. Sure. But 12 years ago, we moved to Minnesota and here we are now. That, yeah,
0: that's I feel like so many elements of your story, like they're, they're the kind of things where it's like, yeah, if I saw that in a movie, it would be, I
1: don't know. (laughs) Right, no. So so I think, what does this really say about me? What this really says about me is that God has to get my attention in undeniable ways. (laughs) There you go. There you go. Yeah, I'm a bit too much like Jonah, I think. Sure,
0: sure. (laughs) Um, So... So you think about you know what you do here, Beth? We talked about the honors program. Yeah. Um, we talked about CWC. So so you've taught on our Western Civ team pretty much unbroken since two thousand three. Hmm. Um, so for eleven years. Yeah. Um, wow. Uh, and and I mean you're one of sort of the core the core people in that course in terms of. Uh, in terms of shaping it in the, the summer of of 2011, which was sort of the big – we actually scheduled a revolution in the class <laughs> to say, okay – because I think three of us had cleared sabbaticals at that right, point. So it's like, right. okay, we don't want to overhaul anything until everybody's cleared. So we went into that with saying, okay, we're going to open up every door and say we could change anything we wanted. Um, and I don't know how radical any changes were but 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 i think they added up to quite a bit
1: and i think it was pivotal in terms of a revolution of ownership in our own minds sure if it was the moment in time where we were sort of committing to being the future of this class which was a role we were sort of already playing Mm -hmm. but it was the first time it really felt authentically ours Mm -hmm. to move forward with. because we
0: had the chance to look at everything and say Mm -hmm. what do we think
1: right yeah exactly
0: um Uh, But in addition to that, I mean, what are the other, I mean, you, you, is this the first year of gender studies? Yeah, I
1: worked on getting a gender studies minor at Bethel for eight years, and this is the first year that it's on, uh, well, it will officially be on the books in the fall, but students can take courses in the minor now this year. It's the second year in a row now that I have taught the intro to gender studies course. So that's exciting. That's been an important part of my identity and career here to Mm -hmm. see that come to existence is very exciting. Um, I teach environmental ethics. That's something I began working on in graduate school. So I've been able to keep that piece alive in my own work. Um, And then I kind of, sometimes I teach social and political philosophies. I've taught existentialism here before. I I kind of fill in some gaps. I find it interesting. I mean,
0: how much of, the things that you are interested in and things that you teach, like it's not hard to find that in your story. It's not hard right. to be like, oh, right. yes, of course you would teach that. Like, I think about things you said about the nine year old or things you said about the 18 year old or the things you said about you at Taylor's. Like, oh, yeah, like, like you can draw some pretty, pretty bold lines between those and be like, it seems, it, it seems to make sense, which right. is, which not everybody can say. That's, oh, you know, interesting. So I think that's, yeah. I think that's really, that's really great. Yeah. Um, So when you think, I I mean, I told you some of the things that I sort of think of when I think of you as a teacher. When you think about the classroom, how do you think of yourself as a teacher?
1: I think of myself in a lot of ways as a co-participant and as a facilitator of what's happening in the classroom. I mean, in all of my classes, yes, there are times where I speak as the authority where I'm trying to teach a concept or explain a reading or introduce a theme. But I also feel like my job is to craft the activities and questions that sort of set the context of the play i mean it's sort of if i was a preschool teacher it would be like am i going to use the blocks today or am i getting the markers out right i mean mm-hmm. it's the sort of how do i set the stage for what do i want to happen in the classroom mm-hmm. today and that's so much fun T- to think about
0: take this as a compliment because it is and i think you will but i was struck because i don't see you in those classrooms i see you I mean, you're a great CWC lecturer, but that's how I think of you. I mean, that's how I see you as a teacher, even though I, like, I know you're doing these other things. I was struck by the talk you gave on Monday, or on Mm -hmm. Tuesday, um, your your talk about teaching, um, by how much, and I don't know how much you, how, how, like, how much you connect teaching with this person, but, like... You were talking about how you think about the classroom almost with the exact words and hand motions that I use to describe Kathy Nevins teaching. Uh, Kathy Evans is yeah. one of the most significant teachers in my life. I mean, yeah. I don't teach anything like her, mm-hmm. um, but that's like I, I took two classes with her. And I'm somebody who as a student, like I was half of my brain was paying attention to what teacher was talking about and half was like like the craft like what are you what are you up to like I'm, I'm interested in, in how, and, and I mean and I remember there was a moment where you were talking about dialing up the tension or dialing down the tension and I was just like that's how I talk about Kathy, like that's what Kathy does. So <laughs> I, right. so I start, and, and even as you were talking there about, you know, what things do we get out, you know, to, to sort of make this group work? And I just, and I realize like you're in that stream of teaching and I don't, I think I might not always give you credit for that. Like, like I, I think of you in terms of, cause I think because I know you're a philosopher, I think of discussions, but like it makes me want to visit your classes and say <laughs> like, like, like so much of it sounds like Kathy. And so yeah. and that's definitely meant to be a compliment.
1: No, I know, I take it as a compliment. And it's you know, one of the things that I'm very thankful for about the fact that Bethel was the end place where I ended up my career and hopefully will finish my career, you know, but um was is is because Bethel put so much priority on teaching excellence. I have been mentored from day one by amazing teachers here. So when I was hired, Marion Larson and Kathy Nevins were doing a lot of the faculty development. Mm-hmm. So in a lot of ways, Marion and Kathy have been formative in my own thinking about how I teach. My department historically has been known for teaching excellence with people like Don Postema and Paul Reisner, David Williams. And so early on from being hired, I mean, I was terrified because I thought, how am I ever going to teach at the level of teaching that these people, you know, do? Mm-hmm. And so I have had wonderful opportunities to learn from great teachers. Um, you know, but it's interesting because a lot of it is, is instinct for me as well. And a lot of it also is in graduate school, having the chance early on to begin teaching so that when I started at Bethel, teaching itself wasn't new. Mm-hmm. Learning how Bethel works and what it would mean to teach at Bethel was new, but but I was already three years into teaching by the time I started here.
0: Mm-hmm. Um. I, I wanna I wanna move from teaching to to Sarah, not the teacher of philosophy, but Sarah, the philosopher. Okay. As I was writing down questions, one question that I, I wanted to ask is sort of, uh, and I, I think I told you this one earlier, but like, what is? I don't mean this in terms of like what do you do with the philosophy major. But what is the role of the philosopher in the twenty first century? Like, like yeah. what?
1: That is such an excellent question, and I think. if I I kind of paint a brush for all of philosophy, I think one of the most important issues is to own the fact that ideas matter. And then I think in different historical contexts, what that means and why it's important is different. But I think in the 21st century, truth doesn't really matter anymore. Ideas don't really matter anymore. People want things that are Sort of sound factish enough mm-hmm. that you can sort of spit it back or say you heard it somewhere and build a whole worldview on that. Mm-hmm. And you, and, and people are interested in ideas that are popular among, you know, other people that they hang out with who think the same way. And so I think as a philosopher, it's really important to say, hey, truth still matters and ideas still matter. I also think coming out of the 20th century and into the 21st century where we've got Continuing growing global inequity, political fragmentation, those sorts of things. I think philosophers play a huge role in hope. Mm-hmm. Uh, and saying ideas matter. And that means change is still possible. We could still come up with a different way of doing this of thinking about this of imagining this we can be different people. And so as a philosopher, I get really excited at the inspirational part yeah. of it in terms of, let's ask the questions about what's working and what isn't working. And let's play. With well, a way that we could imagine it being different, right?
0: I mean, I'm amazed as you were talking about, like, like you know, the the world we live in, sort of the the truthiness world we live in, and and the the way we're just looking for the fact to make to justify what we think or to surround ourselves with, like, mind. like uh, the thing that popped in is like, oh, we need Socrates more than ever, right? Like, no, exactly. like that's exactly, exactly. it, right? Let's, like yep. we need somebody to say, let's start carving away what we don't really know, um, because I think that's that's part of, especially it's part of Uh, you know, one of the, one of the critiques of, of like the internet, of the idea of the internet and all the knowledge on the internet is that we don't hold that knowledge in us anymore. Yeah. And it's like, it's sort of out there. So, you know, vaguely, well, I could look that up if I wanted. And then, and that leads to a world where I can piece together what I want. And, and, and so we really, so we feel hyper intelligent, um, but in fact, we don't own any of that or we don't connect much of that. And that's one of the things I think as teachers yeah. we both of is how do we help students to connect things? Because if you can make connections, you're probably learning the ideas more than if it's just, well, I know how to look that up, look up that, that thing or, or this thing. So I think it creates a world where, where we elevate our sense of what we're capable of or what we know. And that that might be the kind of world that most explicitly needs somebody to say, we don't really know what we, we don't know the things we claim to know.
1: Yeah, exactly. I think you know we live in an age of information. We don't live in an age of truth and wisdom anymore. Yeah. And There's or a, even knowledge, a knowledge yeah. exactly, exactly. Oh, I, I love it. Well, well, I, I, I'm taking
0: a ton of your time. I think you're, uh, I think you're going to go down as the longest episode. Oh so no, far. no, okay. that's the best. Like, Gosh, because
1: I feel this, like I keep talking well, and, for hours. And,
0: and I have to say, I have to say, like. We talk about, like, humility, things like this. We need to be very proud of ourselves right now because there's a story you told me uh, on our way while we were walking up here today. You reminded me of um, we used to do a podcast together in CWC uh, many years ago, and we did it with Stacy Hecht and Chris Harris right. initially. And, and you came on. Um, Chris was gone sometime, and it was Stacy, you, and I. This was in the early years of the CWC podcast, and Stacy's a great talker, right? Um, I hope to interview her sometime soon. Right? She's a great talker. And there was this moment where she was talking about something, and we were both sitting there just totally into what she was saying. And she asked us a question, and we both sort of sat there and nodded. And Stacy said, you know, this is just audio. You have to say something. And she said, this is just Stacy and the two introverts. <laughs> exactly. and, and But then there was a season, I think it's season 10 of the radio show, that you and I did a lot of episodes exactly. just together. Exactly. That might
1: have been when Chris was on sabbatical. I think it was, and, yeah. yeah. Exactly. And, and, and Amy
0: was sometimes in and sometimes not. But like, there were lots of episodes where you and I had to totally carry the ball ourselves. And, uh, I feel pretty proud that we're like an hour 11 into wow, this. Wow. Fantastic. And, uh, and I feel like I could just keep going too. But, yeah. but I, 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 want to sort of respect your time and I have another, I have another point when I need to get to in sure. probably about 20 minutes. So I want to, but I want to make sure to get to sort of the speed round questions. Those are the oh, questions okay, that I'm okay. asking kind of everybody. <laughs> One, and speed never... round doesn't mean you need to answer them fast. It's just here's the things that I kind of want yeah. to ask, uh, want to ask everyone. Um, the first is I'm, I'm curious about, Um, If you could recommend a book, and not a book that you think is the best book you've ever read or the most important book, but if you could recommend a book that helps someone understand you, what would you recommend? So a book you've read where you said, oh, that – that text is somehow tapped into me. Like that helps explain part of me. So I want you to recommend a book and then some other piece of media. It can be another book, it can be a movie, it can be music, can be a play, it can be a TV show, anything. But, but can I put, I'll put these recommendations on the website, on okay. the, the show page. So I'm just, so I'm asking everybody that question. So I want to start with that. Maybe.
1: Okay. Book I and Thou by Martin Buber. I read that book once a year, at least beautiful book, much more like reading poetry than philosophy. Deeply revealing about how I think about my m- myself, my relationship to other human beings, and my relationship to God.
0: Okay. And was so, it in grad school that you encountered? Boober? Yes, okay. uh huh.
1: So that was when I, I read that book first in graduate school. Other piece of media, the film Big Fish. Hmm. I cannot. I, I can barely talk about that movie without crying. But uh, so in the issue of talking about truth and fact. The, the other piece of the puzzle that fits into that for me is still the role of narrative. And sometimes the deep narrative that shapes our life is so much more powerful than the actual facts mm-hmm. of our lives. Um, oh, gosh, that's just an amazing movie on the relationship between truth and narrative. Oh, you
0: make me want to watch it again. I, I, remember, I remember seeing the ads for it when it was coming out and just thinking like, like what is this? Because they, right, they just right. made it look so strange in a good way like i just didn't know it was one of those words like this looks cool we're not going to tell you what it's about but you right. should probably go watch it and yeah and i just remember just being struck by struck by that movie that, that's fantastic i now i want to i want to find a way to see that oh we own so, it so i'll bring it in yeah for you i tomorrow. mean i've seen it but i want to yeah. see it i want to see it again right so, yeah um this is this is not a speed round question but because i have another salinger fan here which glass child are you most like
1: Oh, or Franny. do you identify it with? Okay, I'm a, I'm a Franny. Franny, I've got a yes. When I mean, Franny is trying to pray her way to some sort of solidity in the world, you know, Lord Jesus, have mercy on me. Mm-hmm. Oh, I've prayed laying down on my floor with Franny so many times. So. I think
0: that's such a good choice. See, I'm buddy, but uh-huh. I don't know how I feel about that. I don't know. Like, <laughs> I, like, I don't know. I feel like is that like, I don't know what it means to say that, but like, there is not a character in literature that I feel like, like, cause, cause one of my books about me would be, uh, Raise High the Roof Beams and Seymour, sure, which right. is like, that's the book I want to, like. I almost want to assign to my friends. Just say, just, just read Seymour. i like, <laughs> yeah. it's, it's weird. You might not like it, but like, that's, that is a lot of my brain laid out on the page. Exactly. I didn't write it. I couldn't yeah. write it, but it, that's. A lot of how I think about life and art and right and family and all of these kind of things. So, so I just any anybody who's a Salinger. So I want to ask a question about Salinger then, really quick. So, 2015, more Salinger books start coming out. Oh, I know.
1: I've got a block off time. I'm Where on are sabbatical. you radical with... Oh, Whoa. oh, I just you're going to beat me through some of these. But yeah, <laughs> I think
0: they slowly. In the, the Salinger documentary that came out this year, they slowly start coming out. Um, there's some more glass family books. I think there's another Holden Caulfield book even, wow. and then books about his, his Buddhism about Salinger's sort of Buddhism, his spiritual views. I think some stuff about the war maybe, cause I mean, he, have you seen the Salinger documentary? I haven't You have yet. Netflix, no. right? Yes. I you you gotta watch that. it. It's,
1: yep.
0: I don't know if it's a great documentary, but for somebody who's a fan of Salinger, like it's Really interesting, and I feel like he's dead now, so it's okay. Yeah, I remember right. I read Ian Hamilton's auto or his, his biography of Salinger when I was in Mobile, and I felt really guilty because it's like I love this man's writing; he doesn't want us to to like snoop into his life exactly like i just want to know more
1: yeah no i know it's now it's like we find a time capsule and sort of any piece of him that we can have now that sounds so much
0: better than me saying it's fair game now right (laughs) i feel like the body's cold so yes that's that sounds awful okay uh last question then um and again it's speed round but you don't have to answer fast okay if you were to design your ideal Either your ideal school or your ideal curriculum, whichever is easier for you to think about. What would it look like?
1: Hmm. Or what would be
0: some of the hallmarks of that?
1: Uh, getting outside of the physical classroom would be a hallmark of it. And I'm going to list these not necessarily in order of priority. One of the things that um, that we didn't talk a lot about was when I had the opportunity to go to South Africa, a few um, years ago, kind of on a, a faculty development study abroad research experience. We just have to, in many ways, whether we do that in a neighborhood in the Twin Cities, whether you go abroad, we have to repeatedly get outside of the world as we know it and see the world from a different angle to make progress forward. So, as many opportunities as I can give students to encounter. Mm-hmm. the world in a very different way than they know it mm-hmm. would be really powerful
0: now you've never let a study abroad trip have you i have not where would you go if you had if if if, uh, if bethel rolled the uh, the truck full of money up to you and said not you can take your honor students you can take the whole program or you can take one one class or whatever and you can you can take them on uh if you get you know three and a half weeks an in interim style trip but you can do it any time of year so you don't worry about weather like where would you take them
1: oh my goodness that's such a challenging question I'll make
0: it easier. Where would you take them the first time? doesn't need to be like, this is where you'd always, but like where would the first place you'd love to take a group of students?
1: I would love to travel with students to South Africa, partly, I mean, partly because I'm thinking of a place where I know enough about it that Mm -hmm. I would know what I would do educational wise. But South Africa, I hear Brazil is like this too, but I haven't traveled to Brazil. South Africa has such stark contrasts in terms of, I believe that South Africa and Brazil rank highest in terms of economic disparity between... Wealthy and poor. So the fact that you can be in one neighborhood where you've got lavish homes, um, Land Rover dealerships, you go a mile in the other direction and people are building their homes out of tin and cinder block. Mm-hmm. Um, I mean, we've got economic disparity in America, of course, but not quite to the same degree. Mm-hmm. And that is such a powerful experience. But I think also uh, South Africa is a wonderful place to visit in terms of the tension between challenge and opportunity or hope and despair, sure. their own story of coming out of apartheid, um their Attempt, you know, to have a really robust, healthy democracy, but facing so many social and economic challenges right now. Mm-hmm. Um, I think I love teaching students about tensions. Hmm. I love giving students intellectual or sort of practical kind of riddles where there's not there's not an easy answer out of this. We're mm-hmm. not going to be able to really answer this question, but we need to sit in the middle with all of the pieces of the puzzle. You know, and look at those all at the same time. And South Africa is a wonderful place to get to have those sorts of conversations. Awesome.
0: So, anything else in your curriculum? I realize I sidetracked you on your. No, no,
1: that's fine. Um, The more discussion, the better. I hate grading. So the more that I could have students that really did the work without needing to be, you know, have a deadline. And I say this as a person who usually doesn't write something until the deadline's impending. But, you know, to be able to just assign pass fail based on our ability to interact with material and really think. If I could just grade students on how hard they're thinking, that would be fantastic. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah.
0: That sounds great. I would go to that school.
1: I would. I would want team teaching. One of the best experiences at Bethel for me has been team teaching, collaborating with you and Chris and Amy and, you know, and Victor and Ruben and others, and just having that chance to, um, I mean, I really think it's the, the, the old statement that the whole is greater than its parts. Yeah. That the synergy of when we're all working on something together, makes something really amazing well, happen. I mean, uh,
0: I think that we're the most spoiled teachers here in a good way, in that like we spend so much time watching each other teach. Exactly. And I th- I forget about that when I start talking with somebody from a different you know from a different area who doesn't teach CWC or humanities, and and I we start talking and I realize like oh like they see them the, their experience of teaching is so often them teaching because that's, that's who yeah. they have and I realize like most of the time when I go to class almo- almost most of the time when I go to class. I'm going to hear someone else to watch them and do the same thing I did as a student, which is 50% content, 50% craft. Like, mm-hmm. how does how does Ruben ask these questions? How does he do that? And what can I learn from that? Is there something I can take from from that and bring that to what we do in small group? And then, Absolutely. I mean, the theme that I've been thinking about a lot lately, I, I have a feeling this summer we're going to shuffle the schedules a little bit in CWC so there'll be uh, the chance or the necessity to do new lectures is I love the idea of – when I start with a, a new lecture, instead of saying, okay, the first thing I'm going to go do is go to some books and read up on this and build a lecture. The first thing I want to do, I'm going to do that. But before I do that, I want to say, what does small group look like when I teach this? And how do I make large group like small group? And then how do I build what I need to around it? Instead yeah, of right. what's the content, let's get it out, and then how do I talk about it? And since exactly. already, I already know how to talk about the core of this, how can I get that good Teaching with 17 students, where it's more interactive, it's more asking them questions, it's more Socratic. Not a lot, because I'm not a great. I'm not great at this, but it's more so. How do I bring that in? I mean, when I lecture on Augustine, that's rooted in how I teach Augustine small exactly, group, and that's exactly. the best lecture I do, right? Um, and the newer lectures I have have more to do with here's how I used to talk about it when I only talked about it in small group. How do I bring that in? Um, and I think and I, and and that's part of watching so that's like me watching myself teach and saying how can i take from that and in the same way right. i watch ruben teach i watch you teach i watch chris teach i watch amy i watch fred like what can i what are they doing that I like that I feel like, Oh, and I, cause, cause what I can also watch when I'm watching someone else teach is not just what they're doing. I can also watch the students and be like, you, you have them right now. Yeah. This thing you just did worked. Right. Cause as a teacher, you, you, you feel that stuff, but, but you have a little bit different sense when you're a teacher in the room watching saying, I'm paying attention to what you're doing. I'm paying attention to what I'm feeling from them and I can make some different connections there. So I think, I think the team teaching element, um, is, is just great I, yeah I'm, I'm all about that well Sarah this has been a delight uh, you're officially for me as well. this, you're officially the longest um, <laughs> so yeah this is this has been great uh, I'm sure at some point we will uh, we'll do this again so it's, it's just fun to be back in the uh, the podcast airwaves with you
1: Thank you Thank the you time much. flew by this That's was right. a lot of fun
0: Thanks for listening.
1: When we arrive, sons and daughters will make our homes On the water, we'll build our walls Aluminum will fill our mouths The cinema now